You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. This is Season 6, Episode 9. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And today we're here with Dr. Will Bryan, the newest faculty member of the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Congratulations, Will. Thank you. I think I'm tied for newest, by the way. Oh, tied for newest. Well, one of the newest. Okay. The newly christened assistant professor of mathematics there. And he's taken that position from his previous post in Waco at Baylor University. And if you've listened to our podcast before, you'll recognize him because he's one of our contributors. So this is not the first time he's been on, but uh, we wanted to have him on for the first time in a while to pick his brain because he's a smart guy. We call him the professor. But anyway, Will, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Glad to be back. Always glad to be on the show. We're always glad to have you, man. And we're excited to talk today about this book that you told us you recently read. The book for our audience out there is Physics of the Future uh, by Michio Kaku who is a professor of theoretical physics, I think is his title, at the City University of, of New York. and I think it's the City College of New York. I'm sorry, City College of New York. And uh, the book is basically an exploration of how uh, Dr. Kaku thinks the, the science that develops over the next 100 years will change the way the world works, hence the title, Physics of the Future. Will, since you recently read this, can you give us a more detailed summary of what the book's about? Sure. So Professor Kaku in this book tries to go into a detailed account of what he thinks the world will probably look like uh, in the year 2030 and then the year 2070 and then the year 2100. He goes through a couple of different categories. So he talks about what uh, artificial intelligence will look like, what medicine will look like, what computers will look like, a couple other things, um, all in, in those various periods of time. So sort of the near future um, the not so distant future and then the distant future. And he says in the introduction to the book, something that I really like about this book, that he is trying to avoid being overly speculative. Um, so he's basing these ideas on existing science, on nascent technologies that are, um, not yet developed, but that could be very soon. And on interviews that he's had with over 300 leading scientists, thinkers, inventors, entrepreneurs about where they think they're headed in the next couple of decades. So there's a lot of data and a lot of research that went into this. It's not just, hey, he's a smart guy and he sat down and tried to figure out what might happen in the next couple of decades. Um, it, it's really an honest attempt to be an authentic um, research-based look into what the world might look like in a couple of decades. And one of the things that I appreciate about uh, Dr. Kaku's work is that he seems to be a scientist who is a deep thinker. I mean, wh what I mean by that is that he's not just focused on doing research in his field, but he's interested in sort of synthesizing research across fields. So I should have mentioned this is his eighth book, by the way. And previous titles that he's done have been called Parallel Worlds, which was um, basically a, a dissertation on higher dimensions and the future of the whole cosmos. 
Um, also Physics of the Impossible, in which he tackled topics like teleportation to look at their feasibility. Uh, the Physics of the Future was his second most recent installment. Most recently in 2014, he wrote a book called The Future of the Mind. Um, so again, definitely getting out of his specific uh, field of formal expertise in the, the theoretical physics um, and and sort of synthesizing other research that's going on in, in the scientific realm to talk about what the future will look like. So I guess a, a first general question to you as you've looked at the book, how realistic of uh, of a look do you think his view of the vision is? Uh, what do you agree or disagree with? Well, I think the answer to that depends in part on what you mean by realistic. Uh, so obviously when you're trying to predict what the future is going to look like, there's a lot of uncertainty. So he does, for the sake of concreteness, paint a very um, specific picture of what he thinks the world could look like. But he, he does qualify that by saying a lot of what I'm saying here is probably wrong, but the broad outlines are probably not. And each of these little things that I'm looking into is possible and maybe even probable, but the sum of them is, of course, highly improbable because it's impossible to know um, everything that's going to be happening in the next 90 years sure, or 83 yeah. years. Um, that being said, I think that he does a very good job of restricting himself to things that are probable or at the very least possible. Um, and a lot of them are actually even in development, and he's just hypothesizing that these things are going to be developed further and they're going to go mainstream. Um, he's really not doing a lot of just, or at least as far as I can tell, he's not doing a lot of wild speculation. He's not shooting from the hip with these things. It is. It does seem to be a very carefully researched book that I think takes a very honest look at where the world very well might be headed. Do you think that Kaku's vision is primarily optimistic or pessimistic? Um, I read one review of his book that basically said that it was kind of dark and depressing <laughs> and mm. you needed to pick me up after you read it because it just seemed like the world was going to hell in a handbasket, if that's the right <laughs> metaphor. So uh -huh. what do you think? What was your what, what it, was your reaction when you read it? Uh, well, I've never met Professor Kaku. Uh, I would imagine, though, just from the tone of his book and the way that it's written, that he would describe himself as being optimistic here. Um, he's imagining a future in which humanity continues to improve itself, in which technology grows and grows and grows and grows every decade. Um, he's not including any major setbacks that halt or reverse this sort of progress for a time, nuclear war global scale, natural disasters, whatever. Um, so there are aspects of optimism there. There's also, you know, stuff about how he thinks we're going to be living much, much, much longer, uh, two, three times the current lifespan of humans. Um, things about how we're going to have computers wired directly into our brains, how we're going to have constant access to the internet through contact lenses that we wear. Now, whether or not you think these things are good he seems excited about them. So again, I think I think he would call himself an optimist in these regards. You know, for my own part, I'm not sure I want contact lenses constantly connecting me to the internet. Um, <laughs> <I'm not laughs> so, some other things make me nervous as well. For example, artificial intelligence. Uh, you know, there's been some stuff in the news lately. I think Elon Musk has made some comments. Yes, he has. About how, how concerned he is about artificial intelligence. And frankly, I, I don't think he's wrong. I don't think these concerns are overwrought. Um, it's not clear to me how far we are from machines that are self-aware, that have wills of their own. Um, 
it, it's not clear how far we are from that, but I do think that that is in our future. Um, what else isn't clear is what will happen when that time comes. Uh, we, don't, we don't seem to have a plan for how to deal with that, but it does seem like the sort of thing that could go very wrong if it goes wrong. So maybe Kaku should have been more pessimistic. <laughs> maybe that guy's <laughs> reaction in the review, I think it was New York Times, um, is the way that we should be feeling when we're listening to him expound upon what the future is going to look like. Right. I mean, maybe, maybe there's a middle ground, though, right, where you obviously don't want to be a Luddite about everything and rejecting new technology for sure, the sake of new sure. technology. So I think maybe we can look at the possibility of wearing internet-connected contact lenses all the time. And, and see the pros and cons. Yeah, critically evaluate why that might not be a good idea, but also see what could benefit and maybe there's a middle ground to be had there. I mean, and then something like artificial intelligence, while I... So certainly I'm not I'm not as versed on the science as you are, Will. I'm not as versed on the state of the art as Elon Musk is, but I do share mm -hmm. both of your concerns with artificial intelligence. However, I also see potential upside for using it to do things like conquer diseases and and conquer challenges that we haven't been able to figure out yet. So again, maybe there's a middle Absolutely. ground. I mean, and when what Elon Musk has proposed is certainly not a blanket ban on AI research, but just regulation on it to make sure that it's done well and done responsibly. Right. Yeah. I think he's talked about early stage regulation, which is unusual, exactly. but perhaps in this particular realm, not uncalled for. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I think a lot of the advances that Kaku talks about in this book would be wonderful things for humanity, uh, especially I mean, in the section where he talks about uh, possible medical advances. Um, he envisions toilets that can analyze your excrement for signs of disease, uh, scanners where you can touch your cell phone to your body or your whatever it is, you know, if it's not a cell phone in 50 years, but some personal device to your body and have it analyze immediately the electrical impulses going on underneath your skin, uh, your blood pressure, your pulse, whatever. Um, yeah, you, we can catch diseases in the home. Uh, he was imagining... MRI scanners the size of coffee cups so that doctors can, uh, you know, use those in, in more settings and they can be more portable and more widespread. There's a lot of things that seem very, very, very good if only we could make them happen. And frankly, I, I think that's what history has shown us about technology. There are some things that might have impacted us negatively. There are some things that, uh, that we might say are bad, but on the whole, it's been good for us. So when this book first came out, The Economist reviewed it, and they criticized Dr. Kaku for what they what they called it being complacent in, in what you actually pointed out that you appreciated about the book earlier, that he predicted technology based on what we know now. In mm -hmm. other words, he looked at the state of the art as current technology has things on all of these topics, and extrapolated from that where we could be in 100 years. So he didn't make any predictions about uh, revolutionary leaps in scientific thinking. So just like a, a war theorist in 1850 couldn't have seen the development of the atom bomb, or a physicist in mm -hmm. 1920 didn't foresee quantum mechanics, uh, Kaku is not making any sort of a prediction about that sort of revolutionary leap. And you, you called this out as something you appreciated about the book, but what do you think about the economist's critique that he should have maybe been a little more uh, revolutionary in his thinking. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think 
I think that's just not the project that he undertook here. Um, that's more the realm of science fiction, I would say, than the sort of book that he was trying to write. So I think what, what Cockett was trying to do is say, this probably will happen, where this ranges over 50 different things, some of them amazing, some of them frightening, some of them you know, kind of expected, to be honest. Um, it's, it's a whole other matter when you start thinking about not only what um, probably will happen, but what we just can't quite rule out as impossible, which I think is maybe more what you're talking about. Um, you know, th that's interesting writing. It's just not what he's trying to do. And I, I think it would be unfair to expect him to really attempt any sort of exploration of what science or physics could look like right. by the year 2100. I, obviously, if he could anticipate uh, scientific revolutions 50 years in advance, he would simply you know, <laughs> initiate the revolution, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like, uh, oh, let's just know, wait, and in 50 years we will this know will this happen. new thing. Right. Yeah, right, I would think it know, would make his writing a lot less credible. And yeah, I just, I think he took, I think you're right that if he had gone that route, then it, we would be talking about science fiction instead of sure. actual research. Right. You know, I can go read Isaac Asimov uh, on a different day. That's that's just not what right. this book is. <laughs> right. I, I think that for the project he's undertaken, the way that he's chosen to do it is. Um, his methodology seems to me like a good methodology. Uh, the restrictions that he's made are, I think, the restrictions he needs to make in order to write a book that is making safer bets. Yeah, and I think in that way, taken seriously by the scientific community. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that whether or not all of these claims come to pass, and surely not all of them will, uh, but whether or not even most of them will, I think it's hard to point to any one of them and say, well, that's just silly. That couldn't happen. Right. Sure. Uh, whereas, you know, he could speculate about, well, maybe we'll have teleportation by the year 2080. Well, who knows? Maybe. But it doesn't seem that way. Right. And right. Uh, I think it would be kind of senseless to speculate that on that in a book like this. Yeah. OK, well, here's another critique. And this kind of takes us into the realm more of, I don't know, philosophy of science. But mm -hmm. um, Brendan Fott or Fote, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, um, with The New Atlantis, he said um, basically that Kaku was fundamentally in his book is fundamentally misunderstanding the aim of science or, as he called it, the nature of the scientific enterprise. And for Brendan, he said um, that he believes the aim of science is knowledge and understanding, which includes knowing when and how to limit our exercise of technology, knowing how to use technology prudently. And he says that Kaku misidentifies this aim and he and that Kaku believes that the aim of science is power over nature in order to achieve greater technological progress. So um, more simply, Fott uh, mentions Francis Bacon, who spoke about the difference between science being light-bearing or fruit-bearing. And light-bearing meaning we're focusing more on shedding light on nature and fruit-bearing focusing on the fruit of our efforts and techno technological progress. So not that it can't be both. Um, Brendan pointed out in his review that you can have a light-bearing science that is also fruit-bearing, but light the light-bearing aspect is a necessary precondition for the fruit, and Kaku misses that that necessary precondition. So what, what do you think about that critique? I, I certainly agree with Brendan Fraught about what science is, and with Francis Bacon for that matter. I, I would say that it is not primarily a means to an end. Uh, I would say that science is a way of thinking that 
not only enables us to do more, but that enriches our lives and that enables us to think better, uh, not only about more science, but about all sorts of other things as well. So it's it's a beautiful thing that I think uh, should be woven into the good life. And um, I, I suppose it's possible reading this book alone that one could get the impression that Kaku – doesn't doesn't think that way. That Kaku was thinking of science simply as a foundation for technology and a way of doing things and mastering the universe. Now, whether or not he actually thinks that is a different story. This may be an unfair criticism, in other words. I just want to maybe point out again what this book is. This book is not intended to be a discourse on uh, the aims and the value of science. Uh, this book is intended to be an exploration of what technology and daily life are going to look like in the year 2100 and, uh, you know, 2070 and 2030. So if he focuses on developing technologies and how they're going to develop, well, yeah, of course he is. That's, that's the point of the book. You know, so, so I'm wondering, part of me wonders if Brendan Fott just needs to read a different book. Um, if he, if he wants to hear about what the, what the aims and value of science is. Yeah. This kind of reminds me of our, sorry to interrupt, but it reminds me of our conversation with, um, Chandler Ride in our last episode when he was, he was not talking about science, but talking about movie making and films and how, when you're criticizing a work of art, such as a film, you have to first consider what was the film director or the screenwriter intending to do and criticize it on those terms. Otherwise it's not really a fair critique. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I will say though, uh, in, in, Fought's defense that the in my opinion the book might have benefited from more discussion on the dangers of progress uh, maybe some of the implications of all these technologies that he's talking about I think I think that would have fit in well with this topic and it would have maybe shown how these sorts of scientific considerations lead us to think critically uh, in more ways than one about the world that we live in. Because science does do that. It does lead us to think uh, not only deductively, but also um, well, just very, very broadly about the world we live in. And I think that would have been appropriate here, uh, perhaps a bit more than it was taken on. I think it's a, a great response by you, Will. And I, I think I agree with about 90% of what you said. I mean, I, I see Dr. Kaku as sort of a, a Bill Nye the science guy for grownups in that <laughs> in that. You know the the purpose of Bill Nye's show for kids, one that I watched when I was a kid growing up and I loved, was to get kids excited about science, right? And mm. to sort of be awake to the possibilities of science. And I'm sure there are a lot of kids today who are involved in the scientific pursuits who did that because Bill Nye sort of gave them something to be excited about when they were young. In the same way, I think uh, Kaku is trying to awaken adults to the possibilities of science and to get them excited about what what should be there. But like you said, I also think that he should be uh, maybe a little bit more careful because there's there's something there's something pretty um, something pretty innocent, I guess, about Bill and I inspiring someone to be a biologist. There's something mm-hmm. a little bit different um, in a Dr. Kaku trying to get people excited about uh, you know having basically full access to edit their genetic material. Um, and so I, th- I do think the book, well, having not read it, but based on the description of it that you've given and the reviews I've read of it, I think that um, it would have benefited from a little bit more of an examination of those questions. So so I guess basically answering the technocratic imperative question, just because we can do it, does that mean we should do it? 
Yeah, you know, with some of these things more than others, I think that's a good question to ask. Well, on a lighter note, let's uh, just end with this. Which of the potential technological developments of the next 20 to 100 years have you the most excited? And um, which, I guess, let's let's flip this around. Which ones have you the most concerned? And then we'll end on an optimistic note. Which ones <laughs> have you most excited? <laughs> well, as for what has me most concerned, I already mentioned that I do share some of uh, the concerns that have been voiced by, yeah, I'm not alone here, right? Elon yeah, Musk, sure. Stephen Hawking, some of these celebrity thinkers. Yep. I, I do share some of those concerns concerning artificial intelligence. It reminds me of, you know, to make an analogy to politics, it reminds me a little bit about the situation we're in right now with North Korea. Um, they've been threatening us for years and years and years and years, and it's easy to ignore that sort of threat when it seems... You know, far-fetched, far away, almost goofy, and it's you know, a caricature of a threat, right? But at this point, it seems a bit too real for comfort, possibly fatal. Um, I, I wonder if we're putting ourselves, if we're setting ourselves up for a similar situation with AI, where we sort of think, oh, yeah, I've seen Terminator, haha, yeah, I've seen The Matrix, okay, it's not going to be that way, right? And then... We keep on telling ourselves that, and we keep on telling ourselves that, and I, I'm just not sure whether or not in 30 or 40 years we won't get ourselves into a position where things are developing faster than than we've set ourselves up to be responsible for. Yeah, and you know, I mean, for for me, when I think about AI, my primary concern is not Skynet or an iRobot type situation, although I, I suppose that's certainly possible. Uh, to me, the more the more proximate threat of AI is is uh, having employment supplanted by computers, because right. you know we've we've definitely seen robots take over manufacturing jobs because you can throw a robot on an assembly line and it's it's mm -hmm. it can work around the clock. You don't have to pay it like a shift worker, and it can do often a more precise job than a human's hands can. So we've seen that already, but. What about an era in which we don't need consultants to consult Fortune 500 companies anymore because computers can more uh, in a more agile way comb through the big data that consultants now use to advise companies on making decisions? What about a world in which we don't need many in-house counsels anymore because we have artificial intelligences that can comb through all relevant case law in a matter of seconds and spit out legal recommendations and and uh, briefs for the the company? So I worry about a world in which the whole labor structure is totally flipped on its head and lots of people are, are out of work and, and not paid and not able to, to provide for themselves and their families. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's another thing that I'm very wary of, whether it's through artificial intelligence or just through the steady progress of automation in all sectors. Um, you know, we haven't really figured out yet, I think, as a culture, what to do with all of the jobs that are being lost to automation and to technology. And I think that's going to continue, and it's it's going to get, you know, it's going to get worse and worse um, from a certain perspective, from the perspective of those losing their jobs. Um, I think that sort of technology is just going to continue to grow, and it's absolutely a big problem, and we don't know how to deal with it yet. Um, I will say, as far as the sort of things you mentioned, that I would imagine there's going to be some sort of mixing between people and artificial intelligence. And the way that I already use uh, Google, for example, 
every day when I'm doing my research in mathematics. Right? I remember reading something somewhere at some point. Well, I can find it now in a few minutes. Um, you know, I, I couldn't have done that 50 years ago. I, I would have been a poorer researcher um, because my memory is not as good as it, it's simply not good enough to keep up with the search capabilities I have now on the Internet. Right. I mean, I use machines all the time to help me do my job better. It doesn't mean they can do my job for me. And uh, so I think we will see a lot of that. We, I'm, I'm sure we will also see some jobs that are considered, um, you know, more mental jobs being fully replaced by machines. But I think before that and in addition to that, we're also going to see machines joining with people and coming alongside them to, to help them do their jobs. And maybe ultimately becoming a part of the people as they do their jobs. Yes, I think that's another very real possibility too. Absolutely. Okay, so that's the one you're wary of. What are you most excited about? Oh, lots of it. I mean, really, uh, Zach, you, you have to read this book because uh, one thing that I love about it, it's just it's a page turner because it is all so exciting. You know, you read about what computers are going to look like or, you know, what they could look like in the year 2070, the year 2100. And it's just amazing. And then you go to the next chapter. and It's about artificial intelligence. You read about what that could look like in 20, you know, 60 a hundred years. And it's just, it's fascinating stuff. So anyway, I'm excited about lots of it, but let me mention a few things that I'm particularly excited about. I am really excited that we seem to be looking into space more recently. Uh, we've discovered hundreds of exoplanets in the last decade. Uh, we keep on looking for forms of life on some of those planets. I, I think we're going to find it. I think it's, um, almost inevitable that we're at least going to find microbial or plant-like life on some of these planets. I think that's fascinating and incredibly exciting. I want to see people go to Mars. I want to see um, near-Earth space travel become commonplace. All of these things are very exciting to me and could happen within our lifetimes. So that, I think that's really great. I'm excited about the possibility of reviving extinct species. I think it would be very cool to go to the zoo in 50 years and see in addition to Animals that I don't encounter because they live in Africa. Animals that I don't encounter because they lived in the Jurassic period. Yeah, Jurassic Park, That man. would be amazing. I yeah. want to make it a reality. Yeah, I mean, you know. You've seen the movie, the, right? The you first 20 minutes well. of the movie. Let's make that a reality. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, actually, though, I mean, I, I don't know if Kaku mentions it in his book. I can't remember. But I did read uh, somewhere else recently that there are a couple of teams that within a few years – are attempting to incubate a woolly mammoth inside. Whoa. Yes, I have. I've read this. That's crazy. Yeah. So we could have woolly mammoths on the earth again in about five years, which I think is fantastic. I think that's great that we can uh, bring back extinct species. It's very cool. Um, I'm also selfishly excited about driverless cars because I was thinking I don't that like road too. tripping. Yes. Yeah, I'm yeah. very excited about that. That'd I want to. I want to get in the car and read a book and drink some coffee and Look call that window. my commute. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be fantastic. Well, I think it's, it's not to mention, sorry, go ahead. Zach. Well, I was just going to say, I was thinking today about how we, when we talk about driverless cars, we picture the cars, like almost like the Google driverless cars look now or the Waymo, whatever it is. They, they look like mm. Priuses, right? With some cameras on them. But having driverless cars really changes the form factor for what the car could look like. So you could just be climbing into like a box and it could just be a furnished room inside with some nice Absolutely. lounge chairs, you know, mm. you strap on your seatbelt uh, for the the worst case scenario. But then, yeah, you can have your coffee makers in there and your newspapers, or I guess it, wouldn't more, be, it would be like a tablet, right? But yeah, <laughs> more more back of a limo than yeah, exactly front of the yes. right, yes. yeah. 
sounds yeah, great. Yeah, in addition to that, I mean, you know, we're just mentioning the convenience of it. There are close to 40,000 people that die every year in the United States alone in automobile-related right, right. accidents. I mean, we, we could cut that number by a factor of 100 if we no longer have drivers who are impatient, distracted, drunk, texting. I mean, you name it, right? Um, well, and so think, I think how much stress driving causes people, even people who are following all the rules. That's a good point. That, I mean, stress is a huge problem. And maybe if we were no longer stressed about our commutes, then right. that would help a lot. Absolutely. But speaking of flipping employment, I mean, this, all the bus drivers and taxi drivers and Uber drivers who are on the road now, yeah, out of a job. Yeah, that's true. Also true. Also true. Oh, and truck drivers. There's a, a, tr- uh, a company called Ollie that's trying to do automated semi truck hauling. So that, oh, really? that's a major, you know, uh, road shipping industry that would be disrupted by that. Hmm. On a happier note, Cold Fusion. Ah, Cold Fusion, indeed. We could essentially have limitless electricity for the foreseeable future. You know, we might eventually, well, Kaku talks about in the book how if the energy needs of the planet continue to grow and grow and grow and grow, eventually we'll have to move past even something like cold fusion and start harnessing the power of the sun in a more efficient way. Uh, Because, so I don't know how much you know about how fusion works. It converts mass directly into energy. Um, so whereas in a chemical reaction, you have just the, the electrons in the atoms, just, just the, the way that those are arranged changes and that releases some energy because the extra electrons within the atom are going from higher to lower energy and the excess is put out in fusion and fission. Uh, you're actually taking some of the particles from inside the nucleus and converting them to pure energy e equals MC squared. And, uh, so th- this is. It's of a different kind, and it's vastly more powerful. So anyway, uh, the the bomb that was dropped uh, over Hiroshima, for example, converted about one gram of matter to energy. So that, that's the conversion rate. You take about the weight of a paperclip, convert it to pure energy, and you get an atomic bomb-level amount of energy. Right. Um, the sun converts – I forget the exact number, but it's several tons of mass to pure energy every second. So the the amount relatively of energy, it, it's relatively powerful. We forget that we're 95 million miles away from right. the sun is extremely hot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, even being able to do cold fusion on planet Earth, um, you know, there's only so much you can do. Ultimately, uh, the energy needs of the planet, and this is in the far, far, far future, but probably well past the year 2100. If but the I'm, energy I'm needs thinking... of the planet continue to increase, you're thinking what? Oh, I was just going to say, I'm thinking a Dyson sphere is much further away than 100 years, though, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Uh, but, but Kaku mentions this in his book at some point. And, you know, it's an interesting idea. But I think for the next couple of generations, if we could manage to harness cold fusion, then we could go from either, you know, the extreme pollution and all the other problems having to do with fossil fuel, the touchiness of some of the greener options that we've looked at, you know, the the danger of fission options. You know, the nuclear power that we have now is fission power, and it can be very, very dangerous when it goes wrong. So we've seen a couple times in the last hundred years. And not only that, but even when it goes right, you end up with this radioactive waste. Cold fusion solves all these problems. Uh, you can start with water and end up with oxygen and power. Wow, I'm sold. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really, it's the perfect solution. It's the perfect power plant. If only we could figure out how to build it. Yeah. 
Well, I'll leave that to better minds than myself. <laughs> Keep working on that, Will. Say it. <laughs> Not my area of expertise. I just think it would be very cool if someone else figured it out. Well, your space point resonates with me a lot, though. Sally and I just read the book The Martian and rewatched the movie. Yes, and as you were saying I that, I was thinking, oh, wait, I thought that people were already on Mars. Oh, no, that wasn't a real book. <laughs> that wasn't a book. That was, that was fiction. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, yeah that's, I really, I really hope book. that we see manned so Mars missions soon. Yeah. Yes, me too. Um, I think there's been talk of doing it very soon, um, but you know, talk is cheap. We'll see. I, I, I would be surprised, though, if um, if it doesn't happen in the next 40 or 50 years. I would, yeah, I think that's a pretty pessimistic time window to put on it. I'm, I'm optimistic uh, yeah, that within, within 20 good. years we'll see it. But Well, especially but with Andy Weir's book that he, or Weir's book. Right. I mean, he, he provides so much step-by-step information <laughs> right. about how to survive right. on Mars that I'm surprised there's any questions left. Well, I mean, they're basically they're... a travel brochure. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, I read it and was thinking, oh, maybe it would be worth it. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to go to Mars, but I hope other people do. Yeah, I, I am a huge fan of the, I've said this before on the podcast, the Soviet era space race, the great space race in which we raced the Soviets to the moon. And I think it did a lot for our economy. It did a lot for scientific advancement. And it, it was a great, it was an antig- it, was, it was a great antagonistic but nonviolent way to play out your international relations differences. So it would be, it would be cool to see something like that happen again, uh, but this time to Mars. So I don't know. Absolutely. We'll, we'll have to see if it happens, but that's my vote. Well, Will, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us about this book. We'll have to check it out. Once again, for our readers, it's called Physics of the Future. It was written in 2012 by Michio Kaku. Uh, The subtitle, How Science Will Shape Human Destiny and Our Daily Lives by the Year 2100. Will, as a pleasure, always great having you on. Once again, congrats from us to you and your family for you starting your new job at UNC Charlotte, and best of luck this semester. Well, thanks very much, and thanks for having me. All right, take five. That's right. <laughs> this, we are back to wrap things up with episode nine of season six. And although it may seem like it, we did not actually just finish recording with Will. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's been a while and it took us a while to warm up again. Yep. And we just spent about 15 minutes listening to GarageBand interludes. That's right. So... We're trying to select music for our next season of Vernacular Podcast and. We're thinking about making the whole season elevator music themed. Yeah, or electronica. Just Always like smooth a good choice. jazz. Or yeah, at least doing one episode where it's all EDM, you know, just electronic dance music. We think that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> I need to do we need to do an episode that's just very dramatic where we can use all of the like high seas Voyager mm, yeah, music. Yeah. Or the stuff that sounds like it belongs in the closing credits of Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, or Pride and Prejudice when when Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth are like running to each other in an open field and embracing. Right. Did that actually happen though in the book? No, the... but something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like a, a romantic movie. Where, yeah, a really yeah. over the top romantic right. movie. Yeah. Yeah. So just uh, brace yourself, I guess, is what we're saying for the, the <laughs> next season of Vernacular. It's going to be it's going to be a lot Upcoming, of fun. Upcoming, yeah. yeah. But we're not done with the season yet. We still have one more episode to come. And in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter at VernacularPod and Instagram at VernacularPod. You can also go to our website at VernacularPodcast.com and check out our Patreon page at Patreon.com slash Vernacular. Special shout out to Lauren, who reached out to us last week to tell us how much she enjoyed our interview with Margaret Perry. We talked to Margaret in Season 3, Episode 5, 
and had a great conversation. And Lauren said she really enjoyed it. So thanks so much for listening, Lauren. Yeah, that was one of my favorite episodes as well. And several people have actually mentioned that they really enjoyed that episode, which is good because Margaret is returning for our season finale next week of season six. So tune in next week to hear Margaret talk more about food. And like I said, the first time we interviewed her, season three, episode five. So if you want to go back and check that so I'm surprised you said that was your favorite episode. I feel like I can't really say any of these episodes I are said my one of my favorite. No, they're like they're all just... of our little children. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make that joke. You I know, I know. It. Oh, man. Um, yes. No, one of my favorite. I love them all equally. <laughs> uh, well, that was yeah. also one of my favorites, along with the other 70 episodes. <laughs> yeah. They're all, my, they're all fa- in they're... the words of Brian Regan, they're all favorites. They're all favorites. <laughs> but this is more favorite. All right. Uh, I think that's it for us. Yes, yes. Oh, email at vernacularpodcast or Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. <laughs> Zach and Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. Yeah, you can contact us that way. All right. Thanks so much for listening. For Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Feeling better than ever. When I'm by your side.